You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I would like to tell you quickly about a, uh, another podcast. That's sponsoring our podcast. It's new from Stitcher, and it's called Lost at the Smithsonian. It's a pop culture history show exploring the little-known stories behind iconic artifacts from the National Museum of American History. The host is Asif Manvi. You know that guy. He's from The Daily Show. Super funny. And uh, he's going to walk you through the museum, pull out little artifacts, and tell you uh, stories about them. He's going to talk to celebrities, curators. They'll talk about things like uh, Fonzie's leather jacket or Dorothy's ruby slippers, all kinds of iconic American ephemera. And uh, you'll learn something and you'll laugh. What else could you want? Listen and subscribe to Lost at the Smithsonian right now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this show, which starts right now. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, always good to see you guys. Always a pleasure. Max, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week on the show, the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, Radhika Jones. Hey, good get, Max. Yeah, I, I, it is a good get. I actually, like, uh, I, I sent her a note, like, very shortly after she got that job, and I was like, she come on the podcast, and I realized that was probably not a great time to talk to her. Uh, How but, long ago was that? You could tell me six months ago or three or four years ago. It's like a year and a half ago. A year and a half right, ago. Right in between okay. those right two. Right in between those two. Uh, and before that, she was on the book review uh, desk at the Times. Before that, she was at Time Magazine. Before that, she was at the Paris Review. Before that, she was at the Moscow Times. She had a real interesting career. And uh, it was fun to talk to her about her career, how she got there, but also like uh, what's Vanity Fair magazine in 2019. And one of the interesting things about uh, how she has approached that question is she has really focused on the archives. So they've like built out the archives on the website to a crazy degree. And uh, she also just edited this anthology, uh, a sort of collection. It's coming out in a couple of weeks. It's called Women on Women. And it's all articles from the Vanity Fair archive written by women about women. So we talked about all of that stuff. If you are thinking about uh, what you as a publisher are in 2019, even if you're a publisher of one, then you're a newsletter and you should be with MailChimp. They have all the tools to help you understand your audience, grow your audience. And uh, it seems like people are even uh, monetizing those audiences now, though. So that's great. They'll let you do anything you want. They've got all the tools. All the tools. Here's Max and Radhika Jones. Hi, Radhika. Hi, Max. Welcome to the uh, the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing it. Uh, what is your job like now? What, like, uh, what did you do today? I wear a lot of hats. So let's see. Today... I looked at a clothing run-through for a cover shoot, and I worked on some edits of some stories and had a chat about some video proposals, and I had a meeting about our upcoming summit, our new establishment summit, which is in L.A. later this month. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of, it's always all over the map in a really fun way. I just got back earlier this week from Paris Fashion Week, so that's a very particular hat. Does, um, um, does Paris Fashion Week feel like work? 
Oh, it's it is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's insofar as one has to be in one's appointed seat at the proper time. Um, yeah. It is it is work, and it's funny to be in Paris and just be uh, going from show to show and not really seeing Paris except from for outside your window. But on the other hand, you're in these beautiful spaces, seeing very beautiful things um, mm-hmm. with some very beautiful people. So it's a, it is a lot of fun. But I, I'm not sure you totally answered the question. Does it feel like work, or is it does it feel like um, is I've it... sort of lost track of what what work feels like. I mean, I've been lucky. I've worked in magazines now for more than two decades and in, in journalism publishing kind of writ large for 25 years almost. So it's always something I love. So yes, it's all work, but mm-hmm. it's also all play. Does this job feel different in that way than other ones, like in terms of um, where your life ends and your work starts? Well, this job, well, yes, because when you're the editor-in-chief, it, it is all-encompassing. Um, right. That's like your full name now, right? It's, <laughs> it's not. It's just not something you can turn off. Um, it doesn't mean I don't get any downtime, but to me it means that there is always the possibility that I need to handle something or be available or um, make a decision or think about something going on through the lens of Vanity Fair, which that is that is the job, and so I embrace it. Um, but it also synthesizes a lot of different interests that I've had over the years, and so that's very fun and productive. Um because I've worked in the arts and in books and also like in the realm of celebrity and also in news and hard news and politics. And so I think Vanity Fair is one of the last places where all of those things come together. So it's like a bunch of worlds that you've touched because you were at the Paris Review and then you did like the Time 100. That was a big chunk Mm -hmm. of your work at Time. Mm -hmm. And then you were on the books department at the Time. So there's all these pieces of your life that the job encompasses. But what's the part of it that feels new? Like, what's the part of it that feels unfamiliar? I think the part that is new is this very specific task of coming to a title that had been edited before me by Graydon Carter and by Tina Brown, two very um, iconic editors, and thinking through, okay, how did they each make this magazine their own? And what is it that I can do to at once honor what they built and also make it my own? Right. That's a very different balancing act. You know, you don't go to the New York Times to make it your own. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you don't, you right. don't actually even go to Time Magazine to make it your own. I mean, there are interests and ebbs and flows of subject matter that kind of vary from editor to editor. But I think with Vanity Fair, on the one hand, it has this sort of distinct identity that Tina Brown sort of stamped and it mixes high and low, and it has this kind of delicious mix of politics and media and celebrity and fashion and glamour, but it does also very much reflect its times, and I think it can kind of be a leader of the culture. So I just have thought a lot about that, and and I spent a lot of time, you know, when I was thinking about the job and getting started, looking at the archive and looking at bound copies of her first issues and Graydon's first issues in particular, but also just the whole span of the magazine and trying to figure out, oh, okay, like here she's introducing this thing or this is how the layout changes and why. Or like mm-hmm. this is, when you look back at the 80s, this is kind of what is what the narrative is overall. It's hard to think about that in the moment, like issue to issue. It's hard to think about what is our bigger narrative that we're living through. But at the same time, it's kind of vital because... 20, 25 years from now, someone will look back at our moment and kind of be like, oh, yeah, that was the age of scandal and grift and, you know, <laughs> and like, and we're that was Vanity the, uh, Fair. That was we're, the Conman era. Yeah, we, we are Vanity Fair, so we better be on top of it. So right. so that's that, I think, is the challenge and the opportunity is to come into a property that has this identity and start to absorb it and reflect it back, like, in the choices that I make and mm. that my team makes. Help me understand where... The uh, the line between your job is to reflect this particular moment we are living in ends, and this is your era of the magazine, and it's about what you personally are interested in and mm-hmm. think is important. One thing, one way that I think about it is when we're making assignments. Um, it helps me to think through. Okay here's an assignment that that we're making for my Vanity Fair because it aligns with some of my very particular interests or my desires. 
And one of them that comes to mind is a recent profile that we did of ta Coates, which Jasmine Ward yeah. wrote. Um, and Jasmine is... That really felt like um, like magazine fantasy camp pairing to me. <laughs> that was just like... Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah that's that, like exactly that's, who you want writing about that guy. That's the idea. He was just on the show. Oh, oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a very distinctive sort of piece. It is not a traditional profile because she is not a traditional profile writer. She is a two-time National Book Award winning novelist. And so she brought that expertise to the piece. And I felt like we can, it's maybe strange language to use, but we can get away with that because there's a sense, I think, that in the pages of Vanity Fair that you can encounter something that is surprising and untraditional, unorthodox. I've always had a liking for a long form that is a little bit gonzo, that's structurally different or tonally not what you expect. And in this case, there was just such charisma between the two of them. And it's like, that's what I wanted to capture on the page. You know, I didn't want a profile that was kind of a resume, mm-hmm. um, a list of his accomplishments, you know, a section break, and then the backstory. I wanted it to be a meeting of two minds. So that feels like something that, and because I have a literary background, you know, those are the writers I want in my magazine. Right. So it's just one example. And and there are many more, but I think about it in a very granular way in the stories that we assign and the people we we bring together through those assignments. On some level, is it sort of like uh, like that Clooney thing? Like this is one for me, and then there's like one for like the Vanity Fair writ large, <laughs> or is the is the hope that like these things are one and the same? The, the hope is that they're one and the same. I mean, I think sometimes you can make a move as an editor that may be a little unorthodox or different from what came before. What I found with our readership um, and our audience is that they're very game and very willing to be surprised and challenged because they're 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 reading Vanity Fair because they're intellectually curious mm-hmm. and they're sophisticated. Do you think that there are particularly like thinking about like the feature well of your magazine? Do you think that there are like truly new forms? that have yet to be done for a magazine feature or is like basically the ability that you have to play around mostly in like pairing of writer and subject? It's a good question. You know, I come back to the question of form and structure. That holds a lot of interest for me. How do you structure a political piece in a way that feels different? Sometimes little things can make a big impact. I was thinking in advance of this conversation of some of the long-form pieces that I encountered over my reading life that stuck with me over the years. And one of them is a Bill Buford profile of Lucinda Williams in The New Yorker. And it's a great piece. And it was back when The New Yorker still did section headers. You know, they do breaks now, line breaks, but they don't do a little header. Anyway, one of the section headers on the piece, is it just says, in a mood. (laughs) And I... And it's like just this little, it's like this little grace note, you know, it's like a really perfect fleck of sea salt on a salad or something. It just makes everything taste better. And so that's, it's not really an answer to your question because that's not something that's like an innovation exactly, but it's a little mark of creativity and it's kind of editorial, you know, it's kind of in the framing of the piece and it, again, it just stuck with me over all these years. So I think... I do think that different generations bring different voices to the mix. And one thing that I take very seriously about my job is that I I think that it's my role and the role of editors of this type of magazine, a a magazine that assigns long form in this day and age. I think it's our role to cultivate new talent. And I'm very happy to see and to welcome into our pages a new generation of stylists. Mm -hmm. Because I also think that there are a lot of places where you can write in a more straightforward mode of reportage or journalism, we can do something that is maybe a little more elevated stylistically. And I want to give people the opportunity to do that. One thing that comes up on the show a lot is if you're 23 and interested in this stuff and have some talent, um, the path to get noticed by like you right now is pretty unclear. Like, alt-weeklies were a place that a lot of people have come on this show, got right. their start. 
for all intents and purposes, they don't exist anymore. And so it's been, for me at least, over the last couple of years, I feel like there have been fewer sort of names I've never heard before Mm -hmm. who were writing something that caught. And I also, for the website, like want to find those people. And it's been harder than it was eight years ago. And I wonder if it, if it is for you and your editors too. I mean, one of the the way that I think about it, perhaps narcissistically from my own perspective, is that it, it's hard for that reason. It's also hard because as editors, we don't have the time to mentor in the way that, for example, I was mentored as an up-and-coming editor. And I think about, I worked at Art Forum magazine for many years. And I had a, a wonderful, I mean, I worked with a terrific editorial staff there all around, but one of the executive editors, when they assigned me my first piece to edit, I came as a copy editor, so I was reading all the copy, and it's like I, by the time I'd read each monthly issue for a few months, like eight times in a row to copy edit it, we were very, they were sticklers for perfection at art form. From my research, I know that uh, copy editing is still still a passion of yours. It is still, it's a, but you can't really quit it. <laughs> so, um, It's a drug that's just too good. It's a, <laughs> the problem is there's so many errors in the world. <laughs> so, but no, but I had this executive editor and he, they started assigning me pieces. And so I was like, oh, great, I'm going to be an editor. And then I thought, well, huh, how do you do that? You know, I had never taken a class and maybe there are now, but there weren't then. And, and he, we, you know, he would give me the draft and I would look at it and then we would spend 45 minutes on the phone or in person kind of going through how I was going to edit the piece. And it was only then that I started to think about my style as an editor, you know, how am I getting across to the writer in a way that is diplomatic and sensitive, but also forceful? Oh, no, I think we need this here, not this. You know, I am a person as an editor who asks a lot of questions, and I began to see the wisdom of playing a little bit dumb. You know, I don't follow this. I'm not following it. What does it mean? Can we be clear? And But it was, I had a lot of, I spent a lot of time kind of figuring that out. And I think that... that and, was, get, and getting coached. And getting coached and trying out different forms of, you know, getting the piece to where we needed it to be. And I love that work. And I will always love that work. And I, I now I'm lucky to work with a lot of talented editors. But I do feel that just as it has become harder in certain ways for writers because they don't have some of those traditional channels, I think it's also actually harder for editors because we're called on to do so many different things. And I mean, for me, I'm sitting at the the top of it now, so I'm not in the weeds so much anymore anyway. But, you know, just the demands of the internet economy and kind of how quick that pace is for someone who's just getting started as an editor. I mean, some people really take to it, but it's also not... It just takes away a little bit from that chance to mentor. It's interesting. I I hadn't really had this thought consciously until you were saying that. But like, (laughs) I think in my mind a little bit, like great editors are just like magic people who are just like uh, created to do that. And I never really thought about people getting coached and getting like increasingly Mm -hmm. better at it. And, And I also hadn't thought as much about like in this moment when people are are being asked to do more with less. If you're an editor, particularly like a youngish editor now, probably the thing that doesn't get to stay on your to-do list is like, go look for new people, right? Like if you're doing stuff for the web and stuff for the magazine and like you got to host a talk right. and like hand out flyers. Yeah, and update your Instagram and all of the things. Yeah, I think the jobs have gotten more multifaceted and more demanding and, and look, that taps into a lot of people's skill set. So there are people who will thrive in that environment. But I always say, um, maybe it's ironic that I'm in this job, but you know, I don't, back in the day, it wasn't like editors went on television. <laughs> they didn't, you know, you, you became an editor because you were behind the scenes, right? right? Um, and that has changed. I mean, it was always different for certain kinds of editors, celebrity editors, whatever you want to call them, but they were few and far between. I mean, the people who are kind of doing the work day to day, taking a piece that starts here and getting it up to this level here. Um, you know, they're not necessarily people who want the spotlight. That's not what drives them. They're not getting a byline on the piece. Um, their satisfaction is different. And Do you like it? Which part? The spotlight. <laughs> I, I kind of enjoy it, actually. I mean, it wasn't my intention, 
I do consider myself an editor first and foremost, and I love to work on stories. And it's not the only way I get to spend my time these days, but I still love to do it if and when I can. Um, But I also do, I like to proselytize, you know, I like to talk about the work that my staff is doing. And I like to talk about the stories of the age, as it were. And the fact that I have a platform to do that, I, I certainly, I want to take advantage of it. I think when I was thinking about Spotlight, I was thinking about like um, hosting the Oscars hosting party. Hosting the Oscar party is really a lot of fun. It requires a long dress, um, which requires some fittings and lots of consultation. And that's new and different. And you have to think hard about the shoes and how long you can realistically wear them. Although it's kind of okay these days to take your shoes off in the middle of a party, I think. And no, but it, it is. It's, it is a party. It's not like giving the State of the Union, you know? <laughs> that would be stressful. You just kind of have to hang out. It's, it's, not, it, it's not stressful to you. I don't even give a toast. I mean, maybe I should now that I'm talking about it. It's a, it's a large room in which to give a toast. But no, I can think of many, many more stressful things than hosting the Oscar party. What are, it the, is, what are the stressful parts of your job? Oh, I was talking about like in history, you know, <laughs> <laughs> leading military campaigns. I don't know. Teaching. Teaching is stressful. Yeah, my wife's a teacher. Yeah. You yeah. have to be on. Yeah, and also the stakes are like incredibly high uh, right. all the time. Wait, but I, I, I am actually interested in what the stressful parts of your job are. It seems like a simple question. If you say, I'm never stressed out of my job. <laughs> You're just not going to believe me, but you could allow for the fact that it's true. I don't... No, I wasn't I wasn't going to say I don't believe you. I was going to... Um, there was going to be some self-loathing that happened, but... Uh, no. I don't know. It's like... I handle stress pretty well, I think. I feel like if you surround yourself with people you trust and people who are really good at their work, there's always a way to handle a situation that's difficult. I mean, you know, stuff happens to me that happens to editors. We get letters from angry lawyers on behalf of their angry clients, and things fall through sometimes, or we have to scramble and get something ready faster than we thought we did, or we have... Oh, I don't know all the things that can happen. Yeah. But they're all, you know, they're manageable. Yeah. Have you always been wired that way? Well, I think so. Yeah. I was always, let's say, a good test taker. (laughs) 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 I mean, I, I wasn't joking about teaching. I taught when I was in graduate school. And that, to date, I think, like the first day that I taught college composition at Columbia, which is a required course, which means nobody wants to be in the class. And I was, I guess, 24, 25, maybe I was 26. And I just remember going halfway up the stairs to my appointed classroom and stopping. And, you know, it's like the students are going up and down. It's like the first day of, you know, it's that back to school energy. I still get a pit in my stomach, actually. It's been many years since I've gone to school. But I just remember stopping on the staircase and being like, I could just leave now. I could just leave. I could just run away now. And then I thought, well, that would be kind of lame. So I went up there. But I was so terrified I had to lean on the desk because I was shaking. And I think for me then it was about kind of being on and being, you're performing, really. You have to get everyone's attention and keep it. And so I always think of that because I think, well, um, Weirdly, nothing has seemed as difficult really? as that. Yeah, and then you just take that lesson with you, right? Like if you get through that thing that feels very scary, you can. But it's funny because my son started kindergarten this year, and he's so outgoing, and he's just very easy and kind of runs in. He's like new school. He's just like, I'm here. It's great, you know. And I think I was more nervous than he was. <laughs> there is something about school. Um, so, yeah, no, Vanity Fair, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> after after teaching at twenty four, <laughs> no, it just it's like I like solving problems and I like working with people who like to solve problems. So I, I feel a little bit like, well, so far there hasn't been a problem that we couldn't solve. When you were um, twenty four and clutching the lectern so you didn't fall over, what did you want to be doing? Like, what were your ambitions then? Well, I was in a PhD program, so my ambition was to be a professor. So I definitely had to learn to stand up <laughs> in the front of the classroom without leaning on the desk. Um, So, because I love to read, I love literature, and I had a wonderful time at Columbia. I had fantastic teachers, and 
I did a lot of coursework. I, my dissertation was on contemporary fiction, but I did a lot of coursework in the Victorian novel. And now I realize that it wasn't terribly practical, but the truth is it's wonderful to have read all those books. And, and it's hard otherwise to t- find the time um, to do that kind of concentrated reading. Yeah. And I'm so happy to have been able to do it. Do you have any sense of how that has like um, informed your life? I think probably in a lot of ways. Well, the whole graduate school experience has informed my professional life deeply and vice versa. Because I was also, I was working freelance as an editor at Grand Street Magazine, which was a literary and visual art magazine while I was in school. And I also, I was working at Art Forum while I was studying for my oral exams. Like I was doing a bunch of things. I had side hustles, you know, (laughs) but the truth is any given day, I wasn't sure which was the side hustle and which was the actual hustle. So I kind of had a foot in both worlds. But I think that what informs me more than anything else is that when you're pursuing ideas in an academic setting, there is a kind of rigor that sets in. Like you you need evidence and you need support and you need to have read all the surrounding materials and you need context and you just push very hard for what the idea is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as an editor, that's what I want in every sentence, every paragraph. Like you have to be able to bring the reader along in terms of what the animating idea is. And are you making an argument in the end? Because you can write and write and write and not make an argument. And I'm not saying that everything that we write is a piece of criticism or something like that. But but it does teach you, if you take it right, it teaches you to be a rigorous thinker. And, you know, those are the stakes for me. So you you were doing these two things at once while you were in grad school. You were like working in magazines uh, and also getting a PhD and not clear which one was going to be which, like which one was like driving the bus. Mm -hmm. And from there, like how did you decide... I'm doing journalism, not uh, hanging out with the classics at the front of the room for the rest of my life. Well, as much as journalism and media in general has been a challenged industry over the last couple of decades, the academic world is not exactly welcoming (laughs) either. And truthfully, it kind of came down to, for me, I mean, I did, I loved the work that I did at Columbia, it also stretched out over 11 years, which I do not recommend to anyone. But there were just things that intervened. There were family illnesses. There were life events, you know, other stuff. Um, they definitely frown on that, stretching out so long. So, but by then I had been living in New York for a long time. Yeah. I was married. I wasn't going to take, I wasn't going to take an assistant professorship somewhere at a small college in order to move up one rank at another small college in order and I and it just wasn't going to suit my life anymore. So I did go on the market as they say on the academic market. But I only responded to um calls from places in the greater New York area which you can imagine the competition for those jobs right. is pretty steep. So but by then I was working at the Paris Review and I was very happy to be at the Review and so I felt a little bit like the PhD, I was so happy to complete it, but literally my dissertation sits in a drawer in my How in my many people house. do you think have ever read it? I think maybe seven or eight people have read it. That's wild. Yeah. It's crazy that, like, that um, there's something that you could work on that hard and seven people have read it. Mm-hmm. And then you pull out this magazine every month. Now, see, that's an, that was an instance where I did not care about a spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so help me understand what happens next for you. You were the managing editor at the Paris Review, mm-hmm. and you'd been looking like strategically at academia, and we're like, all right, maybe that's not for me. What did you see as your path then? What did you want to be doing? I was working for Philip Gorevich. He was editing the Review at that time, and it was wonderful. Um, the job had a lot of range. I was managing editor, but you know, it's, it, was, it was a small organization. It's a nonprofit. So there were like seven of us in the office, all told, and we all kind of did everything. And one of the things that I did, which was really fun, was I went on press. Um, We printed at the time in Winnipeg. So I went over the course of my two and a half, three years there, I went to Winnipeg seven times. (laughs) That's a lot of times. (laughs) It's a lot of times. Like to do like quality control. Yeah. I actually got to say stop the press one time. I saw a typo on the sheet. I don't know. I it's like sadly this is like my great skill is like I really can see a typo at six feet. And I saw this 
typo and I just thought, well, I'm here. I'm just going to. So I was like, stop the press. That's like a, that's a, that's a big square on like media bingo. I know. And they were like, what? (laughs) They were like, who says that? And I I thought, I I feel like I've seen it in a movie. I've told that's what you say in this situation. It seemed like the right thing to say. It was actually sort of, I I probably shouldn't have done that. (laughs) But the very, very nice printer who we worked with allowed us to change the form and didn't even charge me, which was amazing. So, yeah, no, but what what I loved about that is that you kind of get a sense of the mechanics of it. I mean, it's, we were printing, we were actually doing a lot of photography because Philip was very interested in photojournalism. And so we were printing photography on uncoated stock, which is really hard to regulate. So a lot of what I was not there actually to spot typos, I was there to help them with the color and the saturation on uncoated stock, which sucks in all the dyes. And so it's hard to regulate. So it was just, it was like a very tactile glimpse of magazine making that I'm happy that I got to experience. Yeah. Because when you're a word person, usually that's where your your part ends. You know, it starts and ends with the text on the page. But just by going on press and being part of the physical production of it and having to think and talk about color, um, I felt like I got a different kind of education. And what did it make you want to do? Well, it... It made me want to be, it made me want to have a bigger role because I was starting to see how you could kind of pull all of these interests together. So I, a friend of a friend called me about the job of arts editor at Time Magazine, which I wasn't really reading at the time, but, but we had conversations about it and I thought, oh, this magazine has such a high circulation and it's possible that by going there and helping to determine the coverage of the arts that I could maybe move the needle on something that mattered to me, like mm-hmm. a book or a film or a piece of music or whatever it was. So that was kind of the appeal, was that I had worked in small magazines for a while and I had worked at art forms. So I'd worked in this very specific world. I was in the literary world. I was in the visual art world. But time, of course, is all about being a generalist. Right. And that was appealing. And did it uh, did it hue to your expectations? Was your experience what you thought it would be? I mean, I couldn't always move the needle. <laughs> <laughs> there were things that I loved that we covered or things that I thought that were important. And you can never, you, you sometimes you really do need a critical mass is something I learned. Like you, mm-hmm. you need everybody to kind of rally around something. But, but one of the things that I'm proudest of there is that we, um, I think it might have been one of the first covers I edited was... Um, we put Jonathan Franzen on the cover, uh, and Time hadn't done a novelist in about ten years. And Lev Grossman wrote that piece, and it was—I um, mean, it sounds silly, maybe, but it was sort of unexpected. Like you didn't see novelists on the cover of yeah. Time anymore. Did it feel like you were like uh, pulling some sort of sleight of hand, kind of? A little bit. I mean, but you know, my frame of reference was Time used to put a person on the cover every week, and when you look back in that archive, it's like Virginia Woolf and, you know, Faulkner and John Updike and Salinger and, you know, they'd be they'd be pencil drawings or they'd be illustrations. It, you know, it wasn't photographs for a long time, but it kind of did take you back to a world where the literary writer was more in the swim of things. Right. And we can, you know, debate how inclusive that world was and what its faults were, but the place of literature in American culture has obviously changed. And so it felt to me a little bit like asserting that there were still people who who had the power, and perhaps it is polarizing sometimes, um, to come out of the literary world and kind of get the attention of a wider audience. Yeah, yeah. It's not that it's so surprising. It's just that magazines weren't doing it anymore. And, And it worked. I think it did work. I want to talk a little bit more about magazine archives because I feel like that's been a really interesting thing that you focused on with Vanity Fair. But I just want to sort of get us there quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you went from Time, and you were also doing this thing at Time Magazine where you were like running the the Time 100. That was a big mm-hmm. chunk of your work at Time. Mm-hmm. I was the arts editor, and then I was promoted. I ended up being the editor of the Person of the Year franchise, which is the, the big Time franchise. Yeah. It started with Charles Lindbergh in 1927. 
And then I also edited the Time 100, which was the Times list of the 100 most influential people in the world, which That's is a deeply scientific list <laughs> yeah. determined you got, by you got, very scientific and methodical people. All data, right? All data driven. In, in no way is that just no. a bunch of editors sitting in a and, room deciding things. And it still, it remains, you know, I left the magazine a few years ago, but it, it still is an incredibly robust mix of people and something that... Um, that I was very proud to work on when I was there. And of course, Person of the Year too, which is a kind of a crystallizing moment. Whether you agree or disagree with the choice, it's a way to look back. And I'm interested in this. It's a way to look back over the year and think, okay, well, that's what we went through. That was This is what it was. Right. You know, It was Edward Snowden or it was Pope Francis or whoever. So, Also a very scientific process, I assume. Very scientific. <laughs> no, it's kind of emotional. But the truth is... I mean, I'm not going to quote Colbert about feeling the news at you. It's not about that. But but it's, for better or for worse, there are people whose actions and words define the experience that we all go through. And yes, it could be the president every year. But, you know, I mean, I'm sure they're talking right now about who it will be. And I right. have some ideas. Um, who do you think it should be? Oh, I'm not going to say. <laughs> when you were sitting in those rooms, and I, I assume it was pretty collaborative, but but maybe not among a huge group of people, is that assumption right? It would start big, and then it started with the whole staff, yeah, and then it would kind of get smaller. In those rooms, when you're making those decisions, which are um, not scientific and are in fact like entirely arbitrary, <laughs> uh, or at least emotional. Like basically, that, what what that comes down to is like uh, some alchemy of like your taste and and your instincts, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both of which and did, your new sensibility, right? And and I wonder whether those things are like learned behavior or something you are born with. Like like, have you always trusted those instincts in yourself, or is that something you just come to know how to do? No, it took me a while actually, and I sometimes wonder if this is at least partly gendered. I, I do think that. I've worked with men for whom that seems to come easier. It may also be generational. But certainly in my case, whatever blanket statements I may make, it took me a while for me to trust my taste. When I was at the Paris Review, I had the experience, which is a, remains a high point in my career, of reading a collection of short stories by a writer who had not yet been published and thinking that they were good and taking them to the group and arguing for them and getting two of them accepted. And I got to call the writer and say, we are publishing your story. There is no better thing to be able to do as an editor. And so I never forgot that feeling, but that was kind of one of the first times when I felt like, okay, I have, like, this is her work, and my taste and my support is helping move it through this channel. So when I got to time, you know, I had played a different role. It was more curatorial. You know, we weren't publishing fiction. But I noticed also that the critics I worked with at time who were fantastic, the television critic, books, movies, music, you know, they had all been working as critics for a while. And they had that sense, this book is going to be big. And I was like, but how do you know? And like they knew. So I started through their work and our conversations and our planning and our meetings and everything. I also started to know. And now I think that, I mean, that is something as an editor for me and my team, it's really, it is part of the secret sauce. Like you have totally. to be able to look ahead at a movie that's coming out six months from now and say, okay, you know what? Like we're going to bank on this. Yeah, they're bets. Or, yeah, you place a bet. I mean, you think this work, you know, it's not about this work will win an Academy Award necessarily, or this will be the Pulitzer Prize winner, although sometimes it is, but it's more just like we're, we're betting on this person. Did you feel like um, taking the Vanity Fair job was a bet? On myself? You can you can interpret that question however you want to. Bet on yourself, bet on the place. It's so funny to try to remember my state of mind. I had read Tina Brown's diaries. I had an early manuscript because I was on the books desk at the New York Times, so I had it before it came out. And then, of course, I read that Graydon Carter was stepping down, and like many people, I wondered who would be the next editor of Vanity Fair. And, and then David Remnick emailed me and said, oh, would you be interested in coming in and talking about this job? He said he was helping out with the search. And it was never something I had thought about because those positions are so few and far between and they are and they are held by such specific people. It's like you can't map yourself onto them really, yeah. or at least that's not how my mind works. I've always taken jobs because at that moment in time, I felt ready to graduate or I met someone at the place 
and I thought, I can learn from this person, or I want, I want to work with this person, or I believe in this vision. And so this is different because it's, it's, it's myself, it's my vision. Yeah. So that was a little bit of an adjustment. But at the same time, part of it is that feeling of, okay, I'm going to come and work at this company alongside David Remnick and Anna Winter and a bunch of other people I hold in the highest esteem. And it just seemed like, of course, if I had that opportunity, how could I do anything but take it? What was it, what was it like when you got the job? Well, um, I always think of the conversation I have with my parents because I don't know what your parents are like, but it's been my experience that parents are sort of inherently personally conservative. So when I first mentioned it to my mother, I, I think she said something like, "What? but you have such a nice job at the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, no, I know, but it's, but this would be, it, this would be different, you know, it would be, it would be a different kind of opportunity. And she was like, oh, well, I mean, if you think so. <laughs> um, and then I think she kind of got it, but. They came around. Uh, <laughs> they came around. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, it, it was, it was exciting. I was sad to leave the Times. I loved it. I thought I would be there for a long time, but it just. I mean, as I said earlier, I sort of started burying myself in the archive and thinking about what is the DNA of this place and how does that express itself best in 2018 and now 2019 and beyond. Did you do that alone? I did it. I did it with some friends, future members of my team. Some of it I did alone. And I started also looking at other publications. I I requested from the magnificent Condé Nast library, um, a bunch of copies of George. Remember yeah. George? Yeah. I sort of felt like that it was a, like it's a George moment a little bit. Uh-huh. And I wanted to reacquaint myself with that magazine in particular and some early issues of W. Like there were other kind of artistic and aesthetic references that I started to look at. But, but no, I, I kind of, it's really interesting to get a sense of a living magazine from its own pages. Yeah. You know, it is like a creature that evolves. And the archive has become a real focus for you. Like you guys have put well, it forward to a really significant degree on the website. Mm-hmm. Like you are uh, sitting next to this anthology that you're about to publish. Yeah, we launched the complete archive this spring on the website. And I will say that you should all go and, and look at it. and just beware of the rabbit holes because once you start reading early Dominic Dunn, it's very hard to pull away. Um, I've had that experience myself. (laughs) It's like his style is really striking. I mean, I'm not saying anything anyone doesn't know, but it's just very, it's so straightforward, but the way he pulls you in through these characters and the scenery, it's like, it's amazing. So all of this stuff is there. And I'm really interested in the arc of a narrative over time what did celebrity mean in the 1980s versus what it means today? Who are the people we even refer to in that way? I mean, in our new issue, the one with Joaquin Phoenix on the cover, we have this tremendous photo portfolio by Ethan James Green of, it's like a dozen very prominent megastars on YouTube. Um, and they're photographed kind of in classic Vanity Fair style in their, in their homes and their settings. But they're, you know, depending on your age, you may not know any of their names. Right. Or you will know all of their names. <laughs> but they are unequivocally famous and that is different that is a different thing i mean that kind of fame didn't exist right when tina brown was editing the magazine you know donald trump as a character very different today in certain ways than he was when he was in the pages of vanity fair in the 80s and 90s so it's instructive to look back and and that is what this collection is um that we're publishing on october 29th it's called vanity fair's women on women and it's something that uh, it was an idea that I tossed off, I think it was my first week on the job. Yeah. I was meeting with David Friend, who's a longtime editor at the magazine. It was like one of our first meetings. And he was telling me about some of the anthologies that he had worked on in the past. And, you know, it was right, it was the end of 2017. So we were right in the... in Weinstein story just broke. Just like in the thick of it, right? Like a couple of months in. And I said we should just do women on women. Like it just came, it just, because I just thought like, this is what is happening right now in the culture is that we're, we're paying much more attention, not only to what women say, but, but also when women are portrayed in the culture, when they are held up to us, like who is doing that? Who are the people who are presenting them? Comes up in conversations around politics too and punditry, right? 
So it just seemed, and what's great about Vanity Fair is that through the years, from Tina to Graydon and now to me, there have been fantastic women's voices in the magazine. Not just subjects, but women writers and voices. So we had kind of very rich selection of stories to choose from. And it's it's really terrific. It is a great collection of really robust profiles. Some of them some of them go to dark places. Yeah. But like they're fascinating. Yeah. And it's a mark, I think, you know, you you may remember a time not so long ago when people said, oh, long form has had its day, it's dead. Not not long form, not like specifically this, yeah, but you know, the whole, the idea of like long, that people were just reading on the internet and they were never going to read anything more than 800 words again. So, you know, magazine pieces were all well and good, but but that was all over. And I think we all know now that that's not the case. And in fact, for us on our site, certainly um, what we see is that our long form pieces drive a lot of our engagement. Um, they are what people come to Vanity Fair to see and read and experience. So it's really inspiring to me as I think every week in our ideas meeting and our assignment meetings about kind of like, okay, what are we assigning? What are we looking forward to? To be able to look at a collection like this and think like, look, this is what this magazine has accomplished in the past. There's no reason we can't accomplish it now. Even though celebrity culture has changed and kind of the role of the publicist has changed and you know I, all of the ways that those things work like we this is a magazine that spends time with people mm-hmm. and really talks to them and that's the goal and do you think drawing such a strong connection to the past like do you expect that significant numbers of people will truly go back and read the archive or it is part of the mission to sort of connect this magazine to its history and make sure that that link is very present for people? Or is it both? I think it's a little bit of both, but maybe more the latter. For for me, what's striking about these pieces that we chose is that they feel just very, very now. Mm -hmm. Like they're very of the moment um, because they are uncompromising. And they are full of voice and full of spirit. And by the way, on the one hand, there are a lot of pieces in here where you can sense that time spent between the the writer and the subject. There are also some fantastic pieces that are write-arounds. And they're just massive feats of reporting and kind of filling in the gaps around who someone um, looks to be in the public eye. And that's also really important to us, too, in terms of the kinds of pieces that we do. So for me, it's very much about immersing yourself in the form of the profile and kind of what magic it can deliver. Yeah. And I feel kind of like we are in a little renaissance of that form. Um, hopefully what are, what my, hopefully like, my Vanity Fair is contributing to it. Yeah, what are your touch points for that? Um, I think that the culture now is so dynamic and changeable that it's almost like it's more and more valuable for us to have some fantastic interlocutors who can help us figure out what to make of someone like Lena Waithe or Michelle Williams, um, to name a couple of my cover subjects, or the stars of YouTube, for that matter. Um, You know, like the audiences are sort of fractured. The culture can feel like a bunch of subcultures put together. But I think there is kind of a hunger for understanding of like who these people, these people who we put on pedestals or to whom we give a lot of money or to whom we entrust our eyeballs or our children or whatever it is we do. Like, who who are they and what do they mean? And, you know, a good profile, I think, links the person at the center of it to to something larger that's happening. And do you feel like... um those pieces are not more challenging to write given the fact that many of the people you just named have like massive direct contact with their fans? Well, that's obviously been a change, right, in in the whole process of it. But I think that one thing that occurs to me as I read the pieces in the Women on Women book and also some of the, the pieces that we've run over the last year and a half since I've been in the seat is that, look, there's a way in which, yes, if you're a celebrity these days, if you're a movie star or an athlete or something, you can say what you like on your own platform with no mediation, and the middleman can be struck. And in that picture, we are the middleman. 
But I do think that there is, it's not everybody, but there are a lot of people in that space who still see the value of talking to someone, having a real conversation about the things that they're doing, the things that they're caring about, and the things that they're afraid of, the things that are challenging, because that com- in that conversation, they will be, they themselves will discover things that they didn't realize. It obviously takes courage. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, it's a payoff for the reader, certainly, but I think that there are subjects who understand that there is something there for them, too. I mean, I certainly, like you and I are sitting here having this conversation, you're asking me questions and making me think about things that I hadn't really thought about. And, you know, ideally, we're choosing writers who will make you think, and there's value to that. And I think, like, you know, for me and for our project of Vanity Fair, that that is our value. And do you think that that value has changed at all? Like, does the cover of Vanity Fair mean less than it did? I don't think so. I don't think so. On the contrary... I mean, it's hard to measure, but I want to say it means more because of the massive power now of its reproduction and the ways that people see it. And of course, the place where I always see new magazine covers, I assume, is where many of our readers see it, which is on Instagram. And we reach so many more people than newsstands ever could. And that cover is shorthand. It's a shortcut for what the magazine means. So when you see... Lena Waithe or Kendrick Lamar or Michelle Williams or Joaquin Phoenix or Beto O'Rourke, uh, you, you know, you're, you're getting a sense of like, where are we in our moment? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the logo and the framing of it, the composition of it, it's a split second read, but it, I mean, our hope is that it tells you something about what we're living through. Okay, well, we're wading into the territory that, like, um, I feel like is uh, both important to ask about, and I'm not, it's not clear to me to what degree you can answer it, which is like, from an economic standpoint, it's a tough time, right? It's a tough time for magazines in general. It's a tough time for Condé Nast. It has been a tough time for Vanity Fair. In some ways, you have to lay a bunch of people off, budgets are down. Like, those are things that are true, as far as I know. My question is, to the extent that you can, like, how do you remain optimistic about the work that you're doing in the face of those challenges? Like, uh, not everyone is, and yet here you are, like, running the thing. So so how do you do that? Well, it's it's not that difficult because the work is everything. I mean, the work is my province, you know? I can't control the larger magazine industry, um, and I can't worry about the things that I can't control. So all I can control is the quality of the work. And, you know, everything we've been talking about, those are the things that matter to me. Are we assigning the right people to the right stories? Um, are we making the pictures that we want to make? Uh, are we putting all those things together? Are we, are we creating a website and a suite of newsletters that kind of represent us on a daily and hourly basis? Are we reaching the audience we want to reach? Our audience is growing, which I'm very happy about. It's actually also getting a little younger, which I'm happy about. Nice. And our subscriptions are up. So I feel like the magazine that I came in wanting to make is happening. And so, you know, my sense of optimism comes from the the quality of the work. It honestly... Like, that is the animating factor for me. Because everything has to come back to, are we being ambitious with the work? Are we proud of the work? Are we, are we putting that first? And does, do the um, challenges that the industry might be facing, which are out of your control, have you felt at all that, like they inhibit your ability to be ambitious? Not really. I mean... You know, I guess like any editor, I would love to have double the amount of money that I have, <laughs> right. right? Who wouldn't, right? <laughs> um, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure the New York Times would say the same thing. But I also feel like we're pretty rich in resources. I mean, I get to work with Annie Leibovitz. I'm working with some writers for Vanity Fair 
who have been writing for the magazine for decades. They started with Tina, um, Marie Brenner, for example, um, Lisa Robinson. And it's wonderful to have that continuity, but then, as I said before, I do think part of my goal and, and part of my task is to start to bring in a new generation of writers and cultivate them. And so as long as I can do those things, then I feel like, you know, I guess I could do them twice as many times if I had twice the money, and that wouldn't be the worst. But I don't think it would change the mix, if that makes sense. Nor would it change our priorities. That makes sense. You can't be immune to like the anxiety about the industry, though. No, I mean, I, I no, and I've, I haven't been immune to it for the last 20 years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, I got to time two months before the financial crisis. So I think I was the last new hire at time for quite a while. <laughs> for four years. Um, not quite that long, yeah. but certainly we moved into a, a period of contraction rather than expansion. And I, you know, it, it's like you see it all around in the industry. You see layoffs in one area and suddenly hiring in another area. And it's a little, it can be perplexing, certainly for the people um, all of us whose jobs are affected, whose colleagues are affected. Um, I don't think you can work in this business and not wake up in the morning and think, huh, you know. But I, but again, I think that for me, at least, the way to deal with that is to really just focus on the work that we do. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, if I'm going to be proud of my Vanity Fair, it's going to be because of that. That's a good answer to that question. It's hard. I mean, we're talking the day after this, like, uh, sort of like carnage at Sports Illustrated, which is another like iconic magazine mm -hmm. with an incredible archive. Um, and I, it was interesting. The reaction, like on on just on Twitter yesterday, was like, just it felt slightly different to me than even it would have felt a year or two ago. It's like this kind of mix of anger and anxiety. You know what was new to you the anger or the yeah the anger at the people who had it, it was there was this strain of the response which was like why would you buy this if you didn't want it mm -hmm. you know um and that felt a little different to me mm -hmm. uh, i don't really have a question about it i just i it, mean look I, I worked at time for eight years and um during the time i was there there were six ceos so it was a lot of upheaval and I remember people would say to me at the time, oh, but time was safe. I mean, the name's on the building. And I was like, yeah, you know the other name on the building? Life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I still miss Gourmet magazine, you know? Like yeah. these things don't stay around forever. Right. Good economy, bad economy, sometimes it's moot. I mean, we happen to be in, um, for media, in a challenging time. But we're also, we are, and I, I, I realize I can sound a little like Pollyanna, but it's the truth. It's like we're also in a time of opportunity. I mean, there are people who are supportive. Again, I would much rather be doing this now than, I don't know when it was, you know, six, eight years ago when people are like, well, that's it for long form. I mean, there yeah. are people out there, audiences who are extremely loyal to the titles they're loyal to precisely because it's a dangerous moment. Mm -hmm. And they understand that. And that's why people, one of the many reasons that people are subscribing to the Washington Post and the New York Times and to Vanity Fair and to the New Yorker yeah. and the Atlantic and other places they're subscribing to because it is more apparent perhaps than it has been in a long time that the kind of journalism and investigation that, that we all do is a really valuable commodity. It is not something that can be aggregated. It is not something that can be churned out in a content mill. And to have that appreciation almost to the point of it being a civic duty that's actually kind of a gift. And maybe that will shift again. But at the moment, I think it's very meaningful. I think I, I think genuinely, um, I don't think it's Pollyannish. Like, I, that's not where I'm coming from. Um, I am like literally just interested in what it's like to be running Vanity Fair mm -hmm. when most of the people you know who work in this industry are kind of like, I do not know what is going to happen with <laughs> magazines. Like, it just seems like an interesting spot to be in. Yeah. I mean, we... You know, it, it also, I think, I think it strengthens us in our mission to know that we are at a title with a very strong legacy and a very strong brand identity, and we are kind of diverse in our influence. 
So we have we have obviously a robust monthly magazine. We also have the Oscar party, which is one of the biggest events of the year um, that has our name on it. And we have a strong and growing events business and we have a fantastic video business. And, you know, like we are doing all of those things and there's growth in those things. So it feels a little bit like it's actually, to me at least, and this is maybe a little bit about my generation and my sensibility, but I like the fact that we are a legacy title because it does mean you can also draw on these strengths. You can draw on the archive. Right. Um, you can draw on the institutional memory of the place and kind of claim certain areas as your own. Okay, I got one more thing, uh, and then and then I will let you go. I'm, I'm interested in, as a monthly magazine, I understand that you guys are covering stuff on the web every day, but as a monthly magazine where you're predicting six months out, like where the culture will be, mm-hmm. where the country will be, it feels to me like if you asked me six months from now, like what will be going on in America culturally or politically, I have never felt the way that I feel now to this degree, which is like almost anything on the like available spectrum of possibilities feels possible Mm -hmm. to me. Like uh, it could be like, you know, anything from the president is stronger than he has ever been to out of office. Mm -hmm. Like it all feels possible. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you navigate this moment when you're trying to think that long term? So, there's a hidden advantage, which is that the news moves so quickly that there really are stories now that they go by in the blink of an eye. You know, you see it on Twitter. It's like, it's only Tuesday. These 14 things have happened. And people kind of joke about it. But the truth is, like, the the cycle is such that they move on. So where we try to kind of come in for the kill is we stop on that Tuesday and think, oh, like maybe there's something here. You know, you kind of find a little nugget. We published a terrific piece about Robert Kraft. Oh, yeah, I just saw it yeah. by May. She was on the show, too. May is a great writer who's, i um, happy to say, now contributing often to Vanity Fair. And the piece is fantastic. And remember what happened with Robert Kraft? I mean, it, it was this calendar year. <laughs> it's just that things move so quickly. So, But we thought that That's was interesting. an interesting story. And it kind of played out in ways that were unexpected. And what we found as May was doing the reporting, and this is all in the story, is that you know, nobody ever really followed up on it because everybody moves on so fast and, and, you know, rightly so. But we can, because we have that lead time, we can kind of stop and pick up those threads. I mean, we published a piece in our September issue about the college admission scandal, you know, similarly broke in the spring and yes, has had a lot of coverage since then, but most of the coverage focused on the celebrities involved. Yeah. Um, and we sent Evgenia Peretz to talk to um, to sort of infiltrate the community of private school families in LA, who had um, who were not movie stars, not not in the limelight in that way, but still had taken part in this scheme, and ended up with a story that was very different. That was kind of about this community and the ways in which um, the parents' actions began to unravel it. And let me tell you, the appetite for that story six months later very strong. Yeah. So in a way. I am very lucky we live, this is the age of the scam and the and the grift and the scandal, or at least for the moment it is, and there are just too many to count. And so it's a little bit like, yeah, there's a part of me that is a news junkie that feels like, okay, we can't just jump on every story. That's not what our function is. That's not what our goal is. So together, we try to be disciplined and we try to be forward thinking and we think, okay, is there something here? Like has ever, at the moment when everyone is moving on to the next thing, is that an opportunity for us to tell a bigger story? Radhika, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And thanks very much to Radhika Jones. The anthology that she edited is called Women on Women. It'll be out in a few weeks. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? 
Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.